The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I'm Susie Knapp, and I'm going to be leading us in our scripture reading this morning from the book of Ezra, chapter 2. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehum, Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, of the sons of Padavia, 74. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hesapherath, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jela, the sons of Darkin, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pacharath Hazabayam, the sons of Ami. <laughs> All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now these are those who came up from Telmala, Telharsha, Cherub, Aden, and Emmer. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Of the sons of the priest, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakok, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be Christ. Are you ready for the gospel? Hey! Amen. Oh, boy. Well, Susie, now praise the Lord. You looking for a name for your baby? <laughs> I want to commend to you Pacareth Hasabayim. Praise the Lord. We recall that after centuries of injustice, idolatry, and stubborn rebellion, the Lord finally sent his Old Testament people, Israel, into 70 years of exile in the land of Babylon, just as the prophet Jeremiah had warned them. 
But from within their chains, from amidst the situation of misery, they remembered that they were yet in the grip of a love that would not let them go. That the very same God who had foretold the exile had also foretold their deliverance. And Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 29, verses 10 through 11 of Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Ezra uses a temple inventory and a church membership role, a genealogical list filled with all these names, and, and, and we, took, we had mercy on our dear sister because there's 76 verses in this chapter. <laughs> Amen. But he uses this church membership role to reveal God's fulfillment of this promise that the very same community that went into exile was the very same community that the Lord brought out of exile, the very same community that God restored to public worship. They, they had all of the essentials that were necessary to call this group of people Israel. They had 12 key community leaders that symbolically represented the 12 tribes, 12 divisions that would help apportion the land. They had a high priest named Jeshua who was the grandson of Sarahiah, the last serving high priest before the exile. They had a governor named Zerubbabel who was a direct descendant of King David. They had a high priest. They had a Davidic king. They had priests. They had Levites. They had descendants of the various families. This was truly Israel. This wasn't the $400,000 Ford GT supercar version of Israel pulled off the showroom with all the bells and whistles. No, no, no. This was the $400 Ford Pinto version of Israel. Amen. Pulled off the junkyard pile of exile, humbled beneath 70 years of slavery, without the bells and whistles of national stature, without the bells and whistles of great wealth, without the bells and whistles of prominence or influence, but they had it where it counted. They had God with them. They had God choosing them. They had a love that would not let them go. This was indeed what our dear brother Dave Chaniot and Sister Heather Carls, uh, Sister Heather Carls gave me this word, the basic viable version of Israel. This was truly Israel. And it's important that we know that though this was the basic viable version of Israel, this was still Israel. This is crucial because what it tells us with this, with this genealogical list, with this church membership role that we're likely to skip over as we read through the scriptures actually tells us is the good news that God didn't throw his people away. These are folks who had experienced the misery and the mess of their own rebellion. And yet God did not throw them away. God did not start over with somebody else more respectable, more faithful, more notable, and more impressive. God is faithful to the humble. God is faithful to the weak. God is faithful even to folk that got some messiness in their life in order to show off his glory. And that's good news today, y'all. That's good news indeed. You know, worldly rulers don't choose their representatives like this. 
These are people that God chose as his representatives in this world. And, and of all the people that God could have chosen to represent him in this world, uh, he chose these people who had been enslaved, these people who had been humble, these people who had a messy past. You know, worldly rulers, they choose the elite, don't they? Come on, if you're going to represent a nation as an ambassador, you had to have gone to Harvard. You had to have gone to Yale. You, got, you, had, to, you had to be some, it's got to be some Ivy League somewhere. The, the world chooses the impressive. They choose the wealthy. They choose the powerful. They choose the well-connected. They choose the flashy. But God especially chooses the ordinary. God especially chooses the weak. God especially chooses the overlooked and the humble. And that's good news to us. That's all right because it means that wherever you are in the season of life, whether you find yourself on the mountaintop of life's experience or down in the mess and the muck and the mire in the valley of the shadow of death, you can still be used by God. You can still be an ambassador for Christ. The, 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 the light of Christ can still shine through you. That's so important because deep in our souls, we oftentimes wonder whether God can actually use real people with real problems. And every last one of these folk in this list today was a real person that had real problems. The returnees, were the so they weren't social elites at the top of their social ladder. These were humble, subjugated people on the margins of the Medo-Persian Empire. They, they had personal and collective histories. They had situations marked by the messiness of rebellion and exile. These people were no strangers to guilt and shame, the guilt and shame of their own sin. But God's grace was greater than their guilt, greater than their shame, greater than their sin. And God had committed to restore not some other people, but these people, these people to the promised land. These people to public worship as the reconstituted, regathered, redeemed, restored, and revived people of God. And, and boy, that's good news for you and for me. Because isn't that where we get twisted up? We know that God can save, but we oftentimes wonder, can he save folk like me? And the reason why we come to church and we, 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 we present our representative to church rather than our real selves to church that was driving on the way to church is because we wonder whether God can actually save real people with real problems and real hangups and real issues like us. But the good news that we see coming out of this passage is that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners, for real people just like you and me. For real people that got real hang-ups, that got real, uh, uh, they, they, they got real uh, things that 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 that, that, that challenges in their lives. That's so important. We need a gospel like that. We need a gospel like that. Folks that got real besetting sins, we need a Jesus that can save folk like that. Hannah, that great theologian, Hannah in the Old Testament, said he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage he, and sets them with nobles. King David said of the good news of the God, let the humble hear and be glad. And, and Mary in her Magnificat said of the gospel and of the Savior that God has lifted the lowly and filled the 
hungry with good things. And what that means is that God keeps his promises to real people just like us, folk with some growing edges just like us, folk with some challenges just like us, folk with a past and are still on their way just like us. I'm so glad that he ain't done with me yet. I'm so glad that we are folk that got some problems, but we got a Savior who is able to save folk just like us. And so this Day. Today, we are going to look at the way in which God works through the lives of real people to make them into his ambassadors, his worshipers, his representatives in this world. And we're going to look here at this list. We're going to look up by God's grace four aspects of this list, four graces that we see in this list that distinctly, uniquely marks out the people of God as the public worshipers of God. And this is what we see. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this in. Here's our first thing that we're going to notice here. We're going to notice that public worship is marked by grace that lifts the lowly. Public worship is marked by grace that lifts the lowly. Now, that's really important. Because that means that when we come in here to worship the Lord publicly, that there is a certain ethic that undergirds our worship. There's a certain ethic that our worship is actually meant to shape us to live out. Verse number three says this. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372. And then we're going to go down to verse 21. The men of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophath, 56. And that, that's an interesting shift. In verses 3 through 20, the people are listed in connection to a prominent ancestor. But notice in verse 21 through 35, the convention shifts, and the people are now listed according to location. And, that, and that's, that's, that's not a throwaway thing. That's important. That's an important shift. According to Old Testament scholar Wilhelm Rudolph, the distinction between verses 3 through 20 and 21 through 35 is that verses 21 through uh, 3 through 20, those people who are, who are located, who are named according to a prominent ancestor were actually folks who were descended from landowners, People who, who had a, a wealthy ancestor, who had a portion and a plot of land, and held on to that portion and plot of land until they went into exile. And the people that came out of exile, they were like, hey, you know what? I came out of ex exile. My great-great-great-granddaddy lived in Bellmead, and I'm going down there because I got a plot of land in Bellmead. But, 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 but hey, but here's the thing. There were some folk that went into exile that didn't have no house. Come on, somebody. There were some folk that went into exile who, 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 didn't, who was renters and not owners. There were some folk that went into exile that did not have a particular plot of land that they could hand down to their descendants and, 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 and actually uh, have them coming back to actually receive them. But, but, it's, but the good news is that even if you were not Wealthy, even if you did not have a wealthy ancestor and a wealthy relative, you were still given a place to settle. In God's economy, in God's grace, the disparities of the past did not haunt you in the present. Oh, my goodness. In God's economy, in God's grace, 
everybody in the community was taken care of. Public worship, listen to this, displays what things are like when God is in charge. And we learned that uh, from, from our dear brother uh, Cody. He preached that so powerfully recently. Public worship is what things look like when God is in charge. And beloved, when God is in charge, everybody is taken care of. But, but, but you ask, but, but what if the poor make mistakes in their life? When God is in charge, everybody is taken care of. But, but, but what if they got themselves into debt? When God is in charge, everybody is taken care of. But, but, but what, what, if, what if they don't deserve anything? What, what if they, what if they were, were irresponsible with, with their life and irresponsible with their investments? What if they made some vast investments? Well, you don't see nothing about them asking questions in this list. The, 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 the <laughs> amen, somebody. The, 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 the truth and the reality remains when God is in charge, everybody is taken care of. And, you know, we, we, we learned that lesson from that great theological treatise, Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> and y'all know this. Y'all have been really doing your, your, your common grace uh, theological discernment work. Y'all know that Ohana means, all right, somebody, and family means nobody gets left. Amen. And we see that truth right here in the passage, don't we? Listen, beloved, koinonia means family, and family means nobody gets left behind. Nobody gets left behind. I want you to notice that, that the first experience, these people who did not have a wealthy ancestor, these people who did not have a plot of land to claim as their own, these folk were probably real nervous coming back to the land of Israel. But when they came back, they were given a place to stay in Bethlehem. They were given a place to stay in Nephetoth. They were given a, a place to stay in Anathoth. They, they had a city that they could live in. And, and here's the thing that they were able to say amongst the people of God. I was beloved. I was seen. I had a roof over my head. I had, I had food on my table. I had a, a, a clothes on my back. I was taken care of. Though nobody else saw me, though nobody else took care of me in the grace and the economy of God for the very first time, I had the dignity of belonging. I had the dignity of a place to say, and that ought to be our testimony as well. When God is in charge, nobody gets left behind. Everybody is taken care of. You know, beloved, we can't come to public worship leaving people behind. Amen. We can't come to public worship. We can't show up here before the Lord, leaving people behind. You know, remember the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan? They were on their way to public worship on the road to Jericho. That, that, was, that was Jericho led on to Jerusalem. And when, and when they saw this man that had been beat up on the side of the road, the priest and the Levite said, I got too many religious obligations I've got to go worship the Lord. I can't stop to help you. The Levite came by. Oh, I got too much, too many things to do up at the temple. I, I got to get to church on Sunday morning. I can't stop to help you. And they went to public worship, leaving people behind. But in the grace and the economy of God, nobody gets left behind. It is a worshipful thing to not leave people behind. 
If you really want to see God smile over your life, if you really want to see Jesus cheerlead you and be pleased with what your life looks like on the Sabbath, go help somebody not get left behind. Amen. 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 You all remember the story of Cain and Abel? Y'all remember how, how Cain killed his brother Abel? And you know what he did after he killed his brother Abel? He had the nerve to show up to public worship, probably lifting his hands before the Lord thinking that his ethical life had nothing to do with his public worship. But here come God's presence to look at Cain in his guilt and in his sin. And the very first uh, question that God asked him was not what kind of hymn are you singing, not what was your doctrine, not what was your denomination. The very first question God asked Cain when he shows up to public worship is where is your brother? Where is your brother? Because public worship has everything to do with shaping you to take care of your brother. If public worship ain't shaping you to take care of your brother, then what are we doing? What are we doing? It took Jesus to come and summarize the law as loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. It took Jesus to reveal to God's people that public worship was all about shaping you to love those made in God's image. Isaiah 58 says, Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? If you really want to see Jesus get excited about your worship, find ways to bless people and lift them up. And so not only, beloved, we see the public worship is marked by a grace that lifts the lowly. We see, secondly, the public worship is also marked by grace that lights the world. Grace that lights the world. We move from, from the lay people amidst the assembly of God's people to the priests. This is Ezra 2, 36 through 39. And one thing that we noticed about the economy, about the community of God's worshipers is that they were marked by a passion not only to see the glory of God, but to see the glory of God put on public display. In fact, that's what glory is. Glory is holiness on public display. Oh, my goodness. Glory is when God lets the world see who God actually is. That's, that's glory. That's glory. That's glory. And, 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 that, and that is uniquely displayed in public worship. You know, according to our list, about 4,000 people out of the 42,000 that returned were priests. One out of every 10 returnees was a priest. Now, that might not mean much to you, but you think about this. What if one out of every 10 people at Cornelia was a preacher? <laughs> like, boy, we sure got an overrepresentation of preachers in here. Why such a large number of priests? Because these were the folks who were especially excited about public worship at the rebuilt temple. The, being a priest, beloved, was a public calling to public service and public worship. For 70 years, these folks had heard about God saving glory on public display through the former temple from Babylon. 
They looked out of their hamlets, out of their, out of their, 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 their places where they lived, and they looked, they, they looked toward the west, toward Jerusalem, toward the direction of the former temple, and they prayed, and they sought the Lord, and they asked that God would answer their prayers, longing that God would reestablish the temple that had been torn down, because the temple, beloved, in the Old Testament mindset was the place where heaven met earth. The temple in the Old Testament mindset was a place where you could get a prayer through the temple in the Old Testament mindset were the place where the atoning sacrifices were made. The temple in the Old Testament mindset was the place that reaffirmed to them the redemptive promises of God. Listen, the heavens declare the glory of God's power, but the temple declared the glory of God's love. You had to look to the temple to see that God loves us, that God has made a way for us to be made right with him. And this was not something that was just done in private devotions in their homes in Babylon, but this had to be a public testimony to all the world at the temple. The atoning sacrifices could not just be made in their homes. It had to be made at the rebuilt altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And so these were public, so the, so the, the priest had a longing and a passion for public worship. First Peter 2.9, beloved, calls us a royal priesthood. That means, beloved, that even you has not just a private calling to be a private, personal, religious person, but the Lord in making you a royal priesthood, you have a public calling to public service. Did you know that? You don't have to be a pastor to be a priest. In fact, all of us, if we're believers in Christ, we are priests. We have a public calling to public service. That means that Jesus calls you to put his glory on display, not just for yourself, but for somebody else. And that's why you can't just do it by yourself at home at Bedside Baptist. That's why you got to come in amongst the people of God in the assembly of the saints so that somebody else can see Jesus' glory on your life. Did you know that? Did you know that? Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This is the calling that we were born for. You were born to make God's glory seen in this world. You know, I'm a sucker for public displays of affection and love. Amen, amen. I mean, I know some people don't like PDA, but I'm a sucker for PDA. I tell you what, I mean, not in like a creepy kind of way. No, no, y'all. Not like that. Lord have mercy. Y'all just <laughs> show mine out to We need help in here. Lord Jesus, sanctify us. We can't. <laughs> but you know, you, you've been, you ever been riding down the street and, and you look and you see a billboard and the billboard. Uh, uh, has, a, has, a, has a private personal note from somebody. Somebody then rented this billboard out and, 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 and they, they're displaying their love for their loved ones for the whole of Nashville to see. Josh Wilson, he owns a company called Living Water Irrigation Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And four years ago, he bought the ad space on eight billboards to advertise initially his lawn sprinkler company, but he suddenly decided to repurpose it. I don't know what happened in his home. I don't know what happened. 
I don't believe he was in the doghouse when he did this, but, but for some reason he repurposed the space to declare his love for his wife, Amy. And so he blasted the words, Amy, I love you more, all across the digital billboards to let his wife know that he loved her more than his irrigation company, <laughs> that he loved her more than all his hobbies and the things that he invested himself in in that way. And we, we, beloved, are the place that God has purchased to publicly declare to Bordeaux, to Nashville, and to the world that his mercies and his love is more. You know that song, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercies are more stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but his mercies are more. And as Christ's ambassadors, beloved, we are placed here to declare to Bordeaux and to this world that God's mercies are more. No matter the size of their challenges, God's mercies are more. And let me ask you something, beloved. Is there anything or anyone in all of Bordeaux that is more beautiful than Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Is there anything or anyone in all of Nashville more beautiful than Jesus? Is there anything or anyone in all this world more beautiful than Jesus? Is there anyone whose love is deeper, whose mercy is wider, whose glory is greater, whose justice is purer, whose word is more trustworthy, whose presence is sweeter, whose protection is stronger, whose victory is surer, whose healing is better, whose life is more lasting, whose fellowship is, is, is more comforting than King Jesus. Jesus is the lover of our souls. Jesus is the one who suffered and died for us. Jesus was the one who was raised for us and who promised to return for us. Is there anybody more worthy to be declared from the rooftops than King Jesus? And so the redeeming glory of God can't just be kept to myself. I mean, there's a song that says, I would say I wasn't going to tell nobody, but I just couldn't keep it to myself. The redeeming glory of God just can't be kept to ourselves. It must be put on public display so that the nations can come to worship the Lord. Do you know Jesus is worthy of every knee? Oh, man. Jesus is worthy of every tongue. Jesus is worthy of it all. And so it is our responsibility as his royal priesthood to put his glory on public display. Here's the next thing. Public worship is also marked by grace that loves to serve. A grace that loves to serve. This brings us from the lay people to the priests to the Levites. The Levites in Ezra 2.40. So now it's interesting in the previous verses with the priests we saw an overrepresentation of priests. But here I want you to notice there is an underrepresentation of Levites. Out of all the folk, out of all the 42,000 folks that returned, only 74 Levites came back. Lord have mercy. What happened to the Levites? Before the exile, going back through redemptive history, the Levites far outnumbered the priests. But only 74 of them, one out of 567 people. Now, the, the priest was one out of 10. The Levites, one out of 567. They were not coming back. And the question is, why so few of them? 
Why do so many folk, why why do so few Levites come back? Well, here's the thing. The Levites did a lot of menial tasks in the temple. The the, the Levites were the the behind-the-scenes kind of people. They didn't get a lot of fanfare, but they did a lot of grunt work. According to Numbers 18, 2 through 3, the Levites assisted the priests with with, with chores, with cleaning, with grunt work, uh, all the stuff that it took to maintain the temple. You know, you had to ask a question. You you go back and you look look at the book of Leviticus, and you began to ask the question, who is going to clean up all this blood? Y'all ain't never asked that question. Who is going to clean up all this blood? It's all, I mean, it's all kind of sacrifices. It's all kind of animals. What's going on? All these sacrifices. Who's going to clean all this up? The Levites. Who's going to carry all this wood for the sacrificial fires? The Levites. Who's going to stand guard at the temple gates? The Levites. Who's going to sing the praises of God while all these sacrifices are being made? The Levites. These were the folks who, who, who came before service started to set up and who stayed after service to tear down. These were behind-the-scenes folk. These were the doorkeepers. These were the greeters. Come on, somebody. These were the the nursery workers. These were the folk who who, who are in the sound booth. Praise the Lord for folk in the sound booth, the production folk. These are the folk that set the mics up. These are the folks that that hand out the worship bulletins. These are the folks that print off the worship. These are the the behind-the-scenes kind of people. And unless there is somebody doing the work behind the scenes, public worship can't happen. Amen. Amen. Unless somebody is working that nursery, holding them babies, this can't happen. Unless somebody is setting up these mics, this can't happen. Unless somebody is cutting up fruit, praise the Lord. Come on, somebody, Sister Leah, to say, this can't happen. The Lord's worshipers are marked by a willingness not only to serve, but to serve behind the scenes. To serve behind the scenes. Serve behind the scenes to do the, the plain, basic, mundane, menial, day-to-day task associated with being a disciple without a lot of fanfare. And the house of God can't function unless the Lord raises up people like that. And I thank the Lord for the abundance of Levites at Koinonia. Amen. 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 I thank the Lord for the abundance of Levites. If y'all ever came to Well Wednesday and y'all ever eaten some of those good cookies from Sister Penny, God would praise the Lord. If y'all ever, hey, y'all ever ate some good chili from my own mama. If y'all ever come, <laughs> some good barbecue from, from the Kellett family, praise God. I thank the Lord for the Levites. For the Levites, it's rare to have folks who have a passion for behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. But, the, but, but, but when we see people from a pa- with a passion for behind-the-scenes kind of stuff, the humble labor that goes along with worshiping the Lord, we know that that person has the Spirit of Jesus working in them. We know that. We know that. Because, we, because this is one of the key lessons that our Lord revealed to us. In, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Although he is God incarnate, he came and served sinful human beings. The righteous life he offered up on our behalf was filled with humble service. And he taught us to live a life of service. John 13, 3 through 5 says this, Jesus 
knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, knowing that he had all authority, and this is the thing, he, knowing that the, it, it, it was like, it's like the Bible is saying, in light of all his authority, he, he used his authority to serve others. Oh, my goodness. That is not what people do with authority in our world. In light of people's power, you, hey, man, you want to see somebody, you want to see somebody start looking down their nose on others? You want to see somebody turn into an exploiter? You want to see somebody turn into an oppressor? Give them some power and some status. You really don't know folk until they got some power and some status. Amen, somebody. I've known people. I've worked on staff with people who it was all good when we were co-workers, but then suddenly they got a promotion and they was over the team, the same team they used to serve on, and all of a sudden everybody's scared now. Nobody, nobody, every, it's just like a, it's just, it's just, it's just make bricks without straw. And suddenly they turn into Pharaoh on us. It's like, man, what happened? What happened to this person? But Jesus not like that. Jesus, knowing that he had all authority, uses that authority to stoop down and to serve others. And listen, beloved, that is the calling that we have as God's, as Christ's ambassadors. Whatever influence you have, whatever power you have, whatever pull and worldly juice you have that the Lord has given you and allowed you to have in your life, he gave it to you so that you can stoop down and serve others. That is the whole pur purpose of it. That's the whole point of it. That, that is the, that is, that's what Jesus is going to be asking you about in terms of the investment of your life. How much of your bank account did you use to serve others? How much of your time and talent did you use to serve others? How much of the things that he put in your hand and the authority that he gave you did you use to serve others? So whether we are pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses, advisors, nursery workers, greeters, hospitality room, production, whatever we, wherever we find ourselves, it, it doesn't just mean showing up on Sunday. It means reflecting the humility of Christ and the love of Christ to stoop down and serve others. And this is the last point here. Public worship is also marked by a grace that believes and becomes. A grace that believes and becomes. You all have been hearing me throughout this and hearing us throughout these past few weeks Talk about koinonia as a place to be loved, as a place to believe, and a place to become. You're going to be hearing that a lot more as we move into this next season of our life together. But here we see that reality coming out of our passage here. We see here in, in, in Ezra 2, 55 through 61, a group of people called the sons of Solomon's servants, and we see the uncredentialed. Finally, we notice here that there is a, this multi-ethnic group of people who were the descendants of Canaanite prisoners of war, who Solomon conscripted, King Solomon conscripted to serve in the building of the temple. Now, throughout the generations 
of these people's service within the life of the temple and amongst the people of God, somewhere along the line, these people began being exposed to the sacrifices of atonement, exposed to the promises of God, exposed to the saving grace that it all signified. And somewhere along the line, these folks who had been descendant of Canaanite prisoners of war went from being enemies of the covenant to children of the covenant. Lord, have mercy. Somewhere along the line, the grace of God, evident and in the place where heaven met earth, evident in the temple of God, evident in that whole situation that, that represented the coming Christ, somewhere along the line, these people realize that there is enough grace up in this temple to reach not just these Israelites, but even me, Lord, even me. Me, I who had been born in sin and shaped in iniquity, I who had been a stranger to God's covenant, I who had lived my life shaking my fist before the Lord, me who had been a rebellion, me who had been a child of darkness, suddenly I realized that there's enough grace of God to make me go from darkness to light, to make me go from death unto life, to make me go from being an enemy to being a child. And ain't that good news? By God's grace, they began to believe. And by God's grace, they began to become. They began to become. They became something that they were not before. You, you keep in mind that these were, these were the descendants of Canaanites. These were the people in the Old Testament that had been marked out for extermination and judgment and condemnation. And suddenly, they go to becoming something that they had not been. They began to be numbered amongst the worshipers, numbered amongst the covenant community, numbered amongst the people of God. These were no longer idolaters. They were true worshipers and worshipers that were even more faithful than many of the native-born Israelites. Worshippers that when the call came to return to the land and a whole bunch of native-born Israelites decided to stay in Medo-Persia, to stay in the place where they were, these were folks, these Canaanite folks stood up and said, I'll go back. Oh, my goodness. How is it that a Canaanite can decide they're going to serve God better than the native Israelites? That's grace. That's mercy. That's kindness. That's the glory of the gospel. And they were willing to make the journey back to Israel. And they became numbered amongst the people of God right alongside everybody else. Not because of the works that they had done for God, but because the work God had done for them, the promises God had made for them, the promises that, that, that listen, that the Messiah would not just be a light for, for God's people, but that he would raise the Messiah up to be a light to the nation so that God's glory may come to the end of the earth. And that's what God can do for you today, beloved. Whatever you are, wherever you you are. There is more than enough grace in the healing of Jesus' wings to reach you and to rescue you and to redeem you and to restore you and to revive you and to raise you up and to make you become something that you could never have imagined. I thank the Lord that some kind of way even folk like you and me thinking the thoughts that we think saying the stuff that we say living in ways that we live can somehow get under the grace of God get under the spirit of God, get in the gospel of God and Jesus will make you look more and more like him to one day you're going to see him face to face and have mercy you're going to be looking just like him ain't that good news 
That's the grace to believe and the grace to become. Become what? Become more like Jesus. Become more like Jesus. Become more like his thoughts and more like his ways and more like his love, more like his light and more like all the things that he does. Become more like Jesus. Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. For it was grace that brought my liberty. I'll never know just why he came to love me so. He looked beyond my faults and saw all my, and so what? I shall forever lift my eyes to Calvary to view the cross where Jesus died for me. And how marvelous the grace that caught my fallen soul. He looked beyond my faults. He saw all of my needs. Are you grateful today? Come on, don't play with me, Cornelia. Are you grateful today? For the grace that caught your fallen soul. Are you grateful today for the grace that made you from a stranger into a covenant heir? Are you grateful today for the grace that made you from an enemy to a friend? Are you grateful today for the grace that brought you from darkness to his marvelous light? Are you grateful today for the grace that brought you from going to hell to going to heaven? Are you grateful today for King Jesus? Thank God for his amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for the grace, the marvelous grace that looked beyond our faults and saw all our needs. The marvelous grace that made us go from Canaanite prisoners of war in the slavery of our own sin and bondage to the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We had 10,000 tongues. We could not thank you enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say amen.